Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, ready to record episode 18 of my podcast, A Thousand Tiny Steps. This is like my third attempt to record this in the last half an hour. I'm having a very difficult time. I mean, it leads me to believe I might need to hold off on this particular episode that I had planned and talk about something else. So I'm beginning my podcast talking around in circles. And the name of this, A Thousand Tiny Steps, right now is very appropriate. I'm walking around in circles, <laughs> taking a thousand tiny steps to try to figure out how to record this part of my podcast. So I will say people that have had trauma and grief in their lives live vigilant and high stress life and struggle hugely with boundaries. So I'm going to focus this on me and my issues around boundaries rather than try to point out some of the things that have happened to me in my grief with losing Molly. I've mentioned before, I I had some child abuse in my young life and how that sets up a mindset for vigilance and self-hatred and self-doubt. When bad things happen to good people, there are books and books and TV shows and support groups for people that have struggled and suffered all different things and how to make yourself whole again and how to feel good about yourself and live a good life and be productive. And I think that going into my life and living my whole entire life, I come from a place of trauma and so many things come attached to the traumatic lifestyle. And one of the biggest issues folks like myself have is boundaries, both in how we treat others, stepping over boundaries, and how we allow ourselves to be treated. Two very, very, very opposite but similar things. I remember once in my process of writing my book with Virginia, who has ghostwritten my memoir about losing Molly, she presented me as a character to her editor. She was talking about me and all the things I'd gone through in my life. Her editor said that if she had created me as a fictional character, she would find me not believable, that one person couldn't go through all the things in life that I had gone through. And the ego side of me took that as a compliment, like, yeah, look at me, I've had this crazy life. But what I realize is I have walked into so many You know, I have jumped from the frying pan to the fire. I've just walked into the mouth of the volcano again and again and again in my life. And in not wanting to to appear a victim, I have to own the fact that I've made conscious choices to enter into many things that I've done in my life. And that's not always easy to do. Much easier to just sit back and say, oh, poor me, this happened to me. I've never done that. You know, I think I've had terrible things happen to me and I've tried very hard to jump up and reframe them and recreate them in a way that either I learn from or I can take my experience and share it so others can learn. I was a victim of child abuse and I definitely grew up with very many problems that abuse children have. I drank too much. My behavior was erratic. I was a bit out of control in college. On the other hand, I was an overachiever and type A personality. I never had an eating disorder, which is interesting because a lot of girls, especially that suffer from child abuse, grow up to be anorexic or bulimic. And it's around control sometimes, not so much body image. I don't like to throw up and I don't like to be hungry. Eating disorders were never my thing. I certainly did enjoy being high and being drunk and partying a lot all through the the 80s. And so that's what I did. I had a level of promiscuity in college that is embarrassing now. I think a lot of us did. It was the 80s. I am old enough to be pre-AIDS, whereas 
we didn't worry about those things until really the mid 80s when suddenly the AIDS epidemic was was devastating, although helpful, <laughs> I think, to save sex and birth control and such. But I managed always to live this parallel life of devastation and elation, of losing and winning at the same time. And my devastating events always end up being the cause for and the reason for the great things. And I look at running and even beginning to start running asthmatic and going out for track was a ridiculous idea on my part. I went out for track because a lot of my friends were doing it. I wanted to try something different. So I did. I went out for track and I'm asthmatic and I had asthma attacks and I didn't have any gym credits because I had a health excuse. And then I was the first girl to break five minutes in the mile. So I had a lot of gym to make up before I could graduate. But you know what you have here is my lifelong struggle at that point at age 15 when I started running to find a way I felt comfortable in my body and running was it. So that gave me a free education. So there's another great thing. I have this free education, but my time at B wasn't without trauma and craziness because that's who I brought to the table. I remember doing an interview for a woman who wrote a book and she was talking about female distance runners, elite distance runners. And so many of us come from abusive backgrounds. And when you think of what goes into being a good distance runner, you have to be able to surpass intense physical pain to keep running, especially if your races are long. It's a long time to think. Every part of your body is saying, stop running and you have to keep running. And the ability to step out of your body and I've, you know, it's dissociation at its best. I find makes distance running the perfect avenue for these children to succeed. I know that sounds horrifying, but, but when you really sit back and analyze it, it makes perfect sense. If you can shut your body off and not pay attention to the pain and continue doing something that you find unpleasant, then you can have great success. And running is like that. In all my years of coaching, I think it's why I tried to infuse the running piece with so much fun, so many activities and things, because running in and of itself can be very, very uncomfortable. As I went through my college years, ran for Nike for a long time. I had tumultuous relationships. I had a very hard time managing relationships. I would never relive my 20s. Well, I might go back knowing what I know and try to do a better job. But, you know, that was a time when I finally came home in the late 80s after nine years in Boston. It really was just time for me to, to stop and to step off the crazy train and try to put together a life. And that's what I did. I, I really came back here for a month and <laughs> 30 years later, I'm still here. So what does this have to do with my grief, my grief path? By the time Molly had died, in tracing the thousand tiny steps back, I had already had incredible loss. My first marriage was a disaster. My second marriage began amidst controversy and hurt and pain between our ex-spouses. You know, I lost a child before we, we could even start our relationship. And that was, you know, traumatic. It seemed to carry with me all of this grief. And then just a few years into, you know, really a good start to our marriage and building our family, I meet another family and I jump in to help this family and I end up losing my job. And my 21 year teaching career and my identity as a track coach, as a teacher, horrifyingly paralyzing. Again, rather than crawl into a hole, which I did for a while, I ran for school board, you know, and now I'm in charge of the very administration that did what they did to force me to resign from that job. So again, I have these tragic things. And the way I try to reclaim myself and step out of victimhood is to take what's happened to me and make it better, to do something to show that I can still survive and surpass and I'm still here. I will say it doesn't always solve anything at all. So by the time Molly died, I had put together a life that was okay financially. Actually, I was doing pretty well. I had a couple of jobs, timing road races and teaching online. I wasn't doing any coaching, but I was working out and competing as a CrossFit athlete. And so I had all of these things taken care of. And then the year before Molly died, I dove right back into a really tumultuous time where I was just balancing and juggling 
a job that was unhealthy, a relationship with the boss at that job that, again, was a boundary-crossing relationship, working way too many hours and spending all this time away from my family and not really addressing any of the issues. Classic trauma behavior. When you're coming from trauma bonds, when the people in your life you cling to because it's a traumatic connection, it's very difficult to make healthy decisions. My initial bonds with Kenny are trauma-related. You know, our early relationship was very, very tumultuous and thought of losing him paralyzed me with fear. And that's a very, very classic, oh, no, 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 kind of panic response. My relationship with Roy was full of trauma, job loss trauma in the ins and outs of his career. Job stability isn't always there. And so there were those traumas. We had our family issues going on. So that relationship was also just based on trauma and I think has lasted as long as it has in whatever form it morphs into from here to there because it's a trauma connection. That's just what it is. And when I look at my friendship with Robin, which was another long-term friendship that doesn't exist anymore, I see that it also was connected on trauma. Our first friendship date together eating lunch, I talked about my job loss and she talked about this devastating injury, athletic injury her daughter had had and how we functioned in, in a traumatic time. And so when I look back on the results of those things, I realized that I set myself up for easy manipulation because I have this huge need to not only be loved, but to give love because I have to make it right. I have to fix it. And I always feel I have to fix it. And I actually say these words. I've said those words to Kenny. I've said those words to Roy. I've said, I said those words to Robin. I've said those words, my friend Steph, the charter school that I worked at, another complete trauma connection. And somehow <laughs> I end up on the losing end of these things, although I don't think there's a winning side. I don't think, I don't think in terms of Kenny and I, either of us feel like winners. I don't think in terms of Roy and I, either of us feel like winners. I don't think Robin and I feel like winners. I don't think Steph and I feel like winners. I don't think there's a, winner, a winning and a losing. But I carry this into my grief journey for this reason. When Molly died, it was such a bad thing such a bad thing that that traumatic piece of my brain, that the PTSD piece that couldn't fathom one more, one more horrifying thing, one more unbelievable trauma in a trauma-filled life, that somehow the behavior would change and that I could be more trusting of people, that people would see this was too big to manipulate and too big to mistreat and that I would be treated differently. And I have to say that that isn't the case. And I am not here to point fingers or to minimize or insult the people that I've mentioned. I just know that Life goes on and the issues and the problems that exist before the trauma don't just fix because of a traumatic event. I will say, in general, people are far more gentle and kind to me than they were before Molly died because I now have this unspeakable loss in my life. When I look at a lot of my grief groups and I look at them all the time because watching others navigate the struggles and how they come above them is helpful to me. I also take great support and comfort in knowing that I'm really not the only one. And I'm not the only one who is sometimes really, really mistreated by the people in their, in their lives. I see it and read it again and again with a lot of my angel mom friends, I call them, where somebody is just horrible to them. And, and I will be honest, my ability to, to cope with the mistreatment is minimal. I don't like to function out of anger. I have never in my life woken up and thought, I wonder how I can hurt so-and-so today. And to be on the receiving end of that actual well-thought-out, well-planned meanness is difficult and hard. And dead Molly didn't stop any of it from happening. So I want to share a few things primarily to show that and to share, because I am quite sure of the few hundred people that listen to this podcast, that you all have been victimized by people. And there's that word again. And I'm tender about it because I've been 
insulted and ridiculed. Ooh, play the victim card, play the dead kid card. You know, I actually had that said to me. And it's hard to, it's hard to listen to that and A, defend it and B, handle it and C, understand it. In the months leading up to Molly's death, Robin and I no longer spoke. We had had a falling out. It was in June of 2015. I was supposed to go to a concert in Maine. It was the last day of track camp and it was an extra ticket. And it was sort of up in the air whether I was going or not. And I had to get rid of all the equipment of track camp. And it's such an exhausting week. And I got home and I had a road race of time in Maine the next day. So it made sense. I could drive up, go to the concert, crash on the hotel room floor and go time my road race. I was exhausted and I did a terrible job packing. And I had a cable, a very specific cable that you have to buy like at a computer store. And I forgot it. I also forgot my phone charger. So I had to turn around. I was like halfway to Maine to see a concert on a Friday night after track camp. And I had to turn all the way back home. And so I got back home and I got everything I needed and I just was exhausted. And I laid down and I fell asleep. I fell asleep in like 30 seconds. And I woke up at four in the morning. I think I scared Robin. I think, I think she felt insulted. I also think she was pretty ready to be done with me anyway. I think that our friendship had sort of come to a natural end, at least on her end, on her side. But for me, you know, it was a Friday. So on Saturday, Robin is mad at me. And on Sunday, there's an event at her business and she's not speaking to me. She doesn't even come. And then Gracie and I and Molly try to bring her cake and she won't answer the door. And so it was this ugly, ugly ending. And I thought, geez, three days ago, she was floating in my pool. I waved at her from the track camp bus and now she's not speaking to me. And, and these kinds of things for someone like me that really functions in a trauma-filled mindset are unbelievably difficult and not logical, I will say. If I can take a step back and step out of it, which at the time I could not, I would see that my behavior was really illogical, but it functions from fear. But we didn't speak. And little by little, all of our common friends fell by the wayside. And I really had a really awful and lonely summer. The last summer of Molly's life, I spent a lot of time on the couch. I did also spend a lot of time with Gracie and Molly, time that I may not have spent with them had I been busy and wrapped up with Robin because we did so many things together. It was constant beach trips and concerts and fun things. I have to say it was a blast. There was nothing bad about our time together. It was wonderful. In the months after my job loss, which I'll get into in another episode, another season, Robin was an incredible support for me. She really was super helpful. And she was that way after Molly died. She was with me, as I've said, every single day, day in, day out for, the, for two and a half years, from all of 2016, all of 2017, and almost all of 2018. As the time went along, I will say, I think it takes a lot of energy for someone to continually support someone who doesn't seem to get better. And I know that I, again, I'm one of those people that I seem drawn to dramatic events. I've actually been called out a couple of times for always having a reason why I'm not accomplishing something. You know, Barbara, you always seem to have a reason. Oh, I'll get to it when this is over. When I resolve this, I'll do that. And it's really been eye-opening for me. My most recent person to say this to me was somebody who remains a dear friend and will forever is Zoomy Zoom, my handyman. I've mentioned this before. She sort of called me out. You know, I was putting something off and she said, you always seem to have a reason why you put these things off. And it's true. I believe that my behavior sometimes with Robin was frustrating because she's definitely a doer. You just put people aside. You know, she can cut people out of her life and I've never been able to do that ever. I just can't. It's not something I've been able to do. And Molly's death hasn't made that any easier for me. So in my two and a half years with Robin being my friend after Molly's death, she also geared me to a friend whose name I won't use, who was helpful to Kenny and I with some legal stuff. And these two were really, really good friends. And we were good friends. These people brought us to their vacation home in Hawaii and you know, gave us two amazing weeks shortly after Molly died in the fall. The woman in this couple gave Kenny and I a lot of legal support and assistance and good guidance. And I trusted her and I thought that that was a good thing. As the legal things tied up, there was a huge financial issue that came up and a huge sum of money was going to go now to this person. 
And I didn't understand why. It didn't make sense to me. We'd never talked about this. Well, long story short, I can't really talk about the details of it because it's a legal issue, but a huge chunk of the energy in this friendship with me and Robin and this other woman geared around money from what they were hoping the lawsuit would generate. And in fighting this and in trying to get to the bottom of this horrible thing, you know, I came across emails and text messages and, you know, you have to, you have to make all this stuff public and they were horrifying. I can't even believe that somebody who was hugging me and telling me it would be okay could then turn around and say the things that were said in all of this, these communications. Really, really, really being pushed and pressured to, to get me to take legal action and wanting to know what was going on and all the step-by-steps and all of this kind of thing. It was horrifying. I remember sitting with a good friend of mine who's also in the legal profession and reading through all of this stuff and just sitting there dumbfounded at what we were reading. You shouldn't treat people this way anyway. But here is somebody who loves her children, who is mortified at the thought of anything happening to her children, counseling me who's lost a child, who has a dead child, and manipulating my reality in such a way that it could financially benefit her and her friend. Horrifying, horrifying. And when it all came about, and when it was all said and done, the friendship ended. It was just the same as it had been in the summer of 2015, but this was December of 2018, right around the time I found my brain tumors. The friendship, I was cut off. Suddenly we were no longer Facebook friends. We were blocked. And the emails back and forth were horrifying and horrifying on my part too. I was angry, so angry that this would happen, but she felt obliged to stay with that friend. She got into a point where she, I think she felt she had to take sides. Do I support Barb or do I support my other friend here? And that friendship took precedence and I can't judge or control that. All I can do is take a big breath and wonder how do people act this way? Am I perfect? No, but I most certainly didn't manipulate the mother with a dead kid (laughs) so I could get money out of it. For all of my days, that will be very, very hard for me to, to wrap my head around. And so I'm talking about it. And does that make me a bad person? I don't know. I feel uncomfortable and funny talking about it, but I also feel that there are people like this out there. I'm the most gullible, wide eyed, truthful, called a liar, but painfully truthful person. And, you know, I just tend to say it like it is. That was an ugly situation. Shortly after that, getting diagnosed with my brain tumors and her making fun of them, like I'm making them up. Anything, oh, brain tumors, she'll do anything for attention. I had my head cut open. (laughs) Look at the pictures, Google it online. (laughs) You don't get someone to saw your head open, mess around with your brain because you're faking it and want attention. So those things were incredibly difficult for me. That friendship and that whole scenario is hard and it remains hard. Gracie, especially, the hard part for me is, is Gracie. She relied on Robin a lot. Robin was another mother figure for her. All of that just disappeared. And I remember that was a big part of Gracie's fear when the brain tumors came around was that not only did I have brain tumors and Kenny was dying of kidney disease and needed a kidney and Molly was dead, but the person she would go to for support had disappeared from our lives like 10 days prior. You know, Robin and I stopped talking December 1st and December 10th is when I found out I had the brain tumors. Let me be clear. In my years being friends with Robin, I had wonderful, wonderful experiences and wonderful good things happen to me. And we had a wonderful time. And I, I will always be grateful and have extreme gratitude for the ways that she saved me in the early months and years after losing my job in the school district. I really did have a meaningful, wonderful life because of her. And I can't, I can't ever not publicly say thank you for that. But I also can't wrap my head around, you know, the lies and the, and the disgusting things that people have said, is this true? 
you know, about things that were said about me. And I just think to myself, well, how does she win in this? You know, maybe someday she'll be a guest on my podcast and she can explain the other side because I think everyone does have a right to voice their truth. So that was sort of the first really horrifyingly bad thing that happened to me in my grief journey. I will say that I was very willing to jump right in and accept help on the legal end and the friendship end. And I remember when I first told Molly and Gracie that Robin and I were getting back together to see if we could be friends again. We we're going for a walk. Molly got very, very worried. No, mommy, no, please, no, mommy. You're finally over it. You're fine now. And it was a huge cathartic process. I will say, I don't know how I might have made it in those days without her. So it's a struggle. <laughs> With the good comes the bad. And that's sort of what happened here. And I lost a friendship and I lost all of the people connected to that friendship. Some of them I've, got, I've gotten back. I think as time goes by, people sort of open their eyes and realize, my goodness, you know, what's going on here. But, you know, her interference in so many of the lives of common people that we had was mind boggling and something I don't understand. Do I wish Robin well? Absolutely. I want her to be happy. I want her family to be happy. I want all to be right in her life because that's what we should want for people, regardless of what they do to us or what they perceive we did to them. The other big thing that happened to me in my grief, so I coached at Bow. I started coaching at Bow in 2014, and I remember applying for the job. One of my high school friends that lives in Bow, her husband coaches there as well, and she's the one who suggested I apply. Thank you, Karen. I remember applying for the job, and the, and the athletic director there, Jim Kaufman, he had been there since the high school opened, and he, he was very honest. I don't know that I can hire you based on the fact that you lost your job in the district. And so my, my job loss had been very public, and I will do an entire podcast season on that. It's interesting. And I think enough time has gone by that I can speak very honestly about what happened. It's been a long time. He was very honest with me. I'm not sure I can hire you. And he actually didn't. Initially, he gave the job to the other applicant. And he said, I'm making this choice because I spoke to someone from Concord. So the person he spoke to is currently teaches in Concord and he is a coach and they both coached the same sport. They were both wrestling coaches for a long time together. So I was a bit taken aback that anybody would have any reason why I shouldn't coach. And, and I could lay out every single email and every threat and every rumor and everything that happened in my exit from the school district in 2010, 2011. And I have nothing that I'm ashamed of. Maybe I have some things I regret, but in terms of it being a teacher and being safe around students, nothing, nothing, nothing that I did justified a job loss. And so I was taken aback by that. The other person couldn't take the job. So I ended up getting it because the season started the next day. So on a Sunday, I was offered the job. And on Monday, I started coaching. And it was the best. So the fall of 2014 and the fall of 2015 were phenomenal. We were third in the state my first year, second in my state in the state my second year. So I was predicting 2016 would be this amazing season. We'd be state champs. <laughs> well, a number of things happened in terms of kids on the team and all this. But the biggest thing was Molly died. And so now it's June of 2016. And all of the girls on the team are in a panic that I won't come back and coach. Please, please, please come back and coach. And if I could go back and redo it, I might, I might not coach. I don't know. But I felt very, very committed to the girls. And Jim was phenomenal in his support of me as a coach and him as my boss. That fall, I had a hard time. I missed a lot of practices. And he was very, very clear that if I couldn't make it, that he understood and that he would go and cover the, the season, the day. Or if I could make plans ahead of time to have a parent cover, he was unbelievable, unbelievably supportive of my grief. I mean, there were times I called upon him. I talked about, you know, Libby's mom coming and lying on the floor with me that day. I was having such a bad time. There were times at practice where I'd start crying. I had a girl on my team whose name was Molly that year. And, and I loved and hated saying her name. 
It was just an unbelievably difficult thing to do, but I do feel that I had a couple hours a day where life could be normal. Molly had never gone with me to coach. And so when I was at Bow High School and coaching, I was in a good place because she hadn't been there with me. And so it wasn't like she was missing from the day. It was a piece of my life that was separate. I will say there was one meet we had in Hawkington at the fairgrounds and Gracie and Molly came to that meet in 2015 and ran all around and they were a big part of it. And I have some pictures of them with the whole team. And so Anytime, even now, when I drive by the fairgrounds, I get a lump in my stomach because I remember them there. And I had bow cross-country sweatshirts and they were hiking Mount Kearsarge one day when I was coaching a meet and they, they had their sweatshirts on. And Molly's holding up a cloud. It's a pose that I used to do. I would put my arms up and hold up a cloud and you could edit it with Photoshop and make it look like I really was holding up the cloud. I have one on top of Mount Washington doing that. I have a couple of those pictures. And so there were connections with Molly and Gracie and cross-country, but not day-to-day. That winter, I also did the indoor track thing again. I had the year before Molly died, I had started indoor track and I did it for free. I took no money. I had about 15 kids on the team, maybe 20 kids on the team. We weren't really a team, but the kids got to compete. It was fun. Our team shirt said not a team. (laughs) It was fun. And I had a state champion, actually. He himself was a state champion. I was just the coach that got to take credit. It was a good winter. It was okay. The following year, Mr. Kaufman retired and a new AD came along and my teams got bigger and bigger. And we participated in a race that honored somebody that was struggling with cancer from a different school district. And it was a lot of fun. And we tie-dyed t-shirts and we tie-dyed them pink. And it was sort of in support of Molly. I would say 10 girls on the team had direct knowledge of Molly. They'd either been in theater with Molly or they took dance lessons with Molly. So Molly wasn't this unknown, invisible person. Oh, coach's daughter, Barb, dead Molly. Oftentimes we would, we would carpool into Concord to run. There's a, there's a really good hill right near the cemetery that mimics the hill at Dairyfield Park, which is where all the state division titles are held, the races are held. And so we can go there and do the hill repeats and then jog right over to Molly's grave. And this became a bit of a tradition. It wasn't an unhappy tradition or a sick tradition. Molly's grave is adorable and very well visited. And we had team photos there. I make a book at the end of each cross-country season. And in the book are all these pictures of our season. And I never, ever left the Molly grave picture out ever, ever. You know, nothing I do is secret. Everything is transparent and open. So I remember this was 2017 now. And in the winter time, after the indoor season was over, I had to have a meeting with my new AD and he expressed concern that I talked about Molly too much and that he had complaints about this. So of course I wanted to know who's complaining. And I have a very good relationship with all the parents on my team. And this was the part that was difficult for me. I didn't have any parents that I didn't communicate with. And and I didn't feel ever that if they had a problem, they wouldn't come and share it with me. I didn't, I felt very, very connected to all the parents. So I just said to him, well, if you need to let me go because I'm a grieving mother, then fine, I won't coach her anymore. And he backed right off. No, 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 that's not what I meant at all. It was just an odd feeling. I didn't like the feeling very much. So that's 2018. So we go into 2018, the fall of 2018, a girl joined the team who had suffered a traumatic loss the year before. She was a freshman. This athlete had lost a parent and it was devastating. You know, when you're You don't want to lose a parent when you're a teenager. And it was a huge piece of her makeup. I thought beautifully managed her grief and struggled and was honest about it, but needed support and help. And she was not a runner and spent most of her time professing how much she hated running. And she struggled that first fall. But what she needed was teammates. She needed to be around other kids. And and I pulled her in and I connected her with Gracie. And, And in a very clear act of trauma bonding and not understanding boundaries, I really, really pulled her in and gave her a ton of support. I didn't ever communicate with her inappropriately or secretively. I was very, very honest and open. And I communicated with her living parent quite well also. Any communications we had, I shared because I felt that the way to help this child was to, you know, work with the parents and the adults in her life 
you know, to, to create support at home. The fall of 2018 ended. She managed to last the whole season. We had a wonderful season. Competitively, we weren't doing so well, but we had this unbelievable group of incoming freshmen that were coming in 2019. So again, I did the cross country and then I did the indoor track. And so I split the job that year with another coach. And it's a good thing that I did because that was when I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. So I remember the first person I told that I had a brain tumor in terms of students was this girl. And even though she didn't run indoor track with me, you know, I would see her all the time at practice because a lot of our practices were in the building. And I remember sitting her down and letting her know, look, I just had this diagnosis. And she knew all about Molly. Everyone knew about Molly's death and how she died. And so during that whole process, when I was in the hospital in New York City, I had a beau parent bring two runners to see me all the way in New York. I mean, they were on their way to a show, but still they came and visited me in the hospital. And this young girl communicated with me regularly. I hope you're doing well. Way to go. Be strong. That season went along. And of course, couldn't end up coaching any more of the season because I was, you know, had my head cut open. I was a big giant scar and all of the limitations around recovering. That season ended. And again, I felt just really not super supported. And it was hard to pinpoint, but you just know when somebody looks at you and isn't really on the same page. My teams were huge. And so transportation was always an issue because we, they wanted to use just one bus. And they wanted the boys and girls teams to both be on the bus. And that isn't always manageable. You know, I had 45 girls on the team. My last year, I had over 50 and I didn't want to leave any of them at home. Sometimes it's the ones that wouldn't be on a cross-country team or a sport that are the ones, the ones that needed the most. We oftentimes just butted heads. But again, I was very open with my communications. I put everything, the pictures in my book. I gave a copy of the cross-country book to, to every administrator, to the superintendent, to the principal, to the AD. If you want to know what happened day-to-day at cross-country practice with Barb, just look at the book. It was a, a big piece of it. Going into 2019, I've grown some hair back and I have a team now that has some really, really super competitive girls. And I, I had this hunch that there was some division there. And I remember thinking that this group didn't care for me and the parents didn't care for me. And I couldn't wrap my head around it. It was just very unsettling. And I reached out several times to my athletic director and to the athletic trainer and to the principal for help. I sent email after email saying, I'm feeling unsupported every day. And it was, I would tell you what, it really triggered me back to when I lost my job in the school district where every day I was getting a complaint. Somebody says you're late. Somebody says this, somebody says this. And I started to have these complaints, complaints about things that were happening at practice, complaints that we weren't working hard enough, complaints that I was letting people drive in my car one at a time. And you know, you're not supposed to have one person in your car and all of these complaints. And I responded to everyone and I sent emails to the families and, you know, perhaps my emails were harsh, but I decided I would just summarize the week every week and send emails. But it was just unsettling. And I reached out two or three times. Please, I need help. I want help. I need support here. Also, the parent of the girl that had suffered the loss was now insistent upon sort of dictating how I coach the daughter, how what races she run, when I run her. And I just felt like I'm the coach and really it should be my decision. And it's bigger than just standing on the starting line. Starting a race and dropping out is, is worse than not running at all in my mind if you're not ready all of the things that make me a very successful and good coach. The whole season was tricky. We used to tie-dye shirts in my yard and hang them on the fence. And now this was unacceptable. I had to tie-dye shirts at the high school. So I carted everything out to the high school. We tie-dyed the shirts there and they took them home. All sorts of things. We didn't do the hill repeats in Concord because it wasn't okay for the girls to drive. And, And anytime we wanted to go anywhere, I had to get help. And it just became very, very laborious. And, and again, safety is number one. And Obviously, kids need to be safe, but I couldn't wrap my head around what I was doing that was unsafe. I was coaching the way I had always coached, and maybe maybe the way I coach is wrong. So 
we had a big meet, the Manchester Invitational, and it's a lot of stress and a lot of just, there's the freshman race and the JVC race and the JVB race and then the varsity race and all these races. And I have a huge team. I had a significant number of runners in every race. It was very exciting. I had over 50 girls in cross country and there are only 500 students in Bow. So, you know, I had like, you know, one fifth of the female population running cross country, which I felt good about. So it was a long day. And this particular girl was at my side the entire day. She was clearly struggling, clearly tense. Gracie showed up and she had come the year before and she spent the whole day with Gracie and Gracie just reached out and she would text Gracie in the nighttime and, and they had all sorts of, you know, communication. Gracie really put herself out there. In the conversations that we'd have at practice, you know, the girls would turn 18 and get tattoos. So many people have tattoos now and I didn't get one until this particular fall. And I got my tattoo, which is my hashtag heart, Molly Be The Miracle. Here, I'm showing it if you can see the podcast. And it was a really spontaneous event. So I had the cross-country meet Saturday and it was a meet that I let her go home early from. She was really, really having a bad time. It was clear. She started the race and had to drop out and she needed her inhaler. And we really, we really rallied around her as a team and took good care of her. And she sent me a sweet, sweet thank you text. And they just thank you so much for understanding me. And the next day, I'm driving home from the grocery store and I drive by a tattoo store and I, I'm like, ah, I'm going to get the tattoo. And it was very, very spontaneous. So I got the tattoo and I was pretty excited about it. And when I got home, I sent a picture of my flexed arm to several people, five or six runners on my team, three or four parents of the runners on my team. And I sent a picture to the AD. So the picture that I sent to all of these people, and I sent one to this girl, I sent also to the AD. Everyone had seen the picture. I didn't send a picture in, in the dark of night you know, to anybody illicitly or whatever. I had conversations back and forth with a lot of the runners. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I can't wait to see it. And it all seemed pretty, pretty good. And I also mentioned to this particular runner, the one who had suffered the loss, that I could see a memorial tattoo for her person as well. And she got a little put off by it. You know, I, I think she thought I was going to get a tattoo in memory of her, the person she lost. It wouldn't make any sense. So at any rate, there was clearly a communication gap here and she didn't come to practice for a couple of days. And so I, I wondered why. And, you know, I messaged her, hey, are you okay? And, I, and she sent me a picture with a very, very unhappy face. And so that Wednesday, we're, I'm getting ready for a meet. I'm picking up the sandwiches. You know, it's a lot of work. I've cut the ribbons. I've done everything for, the, for our cross-country meet. And I get called in and accused of scaring a student that I've inappropriately texted. And I get put on leave. I get suspended. And I, I didn't coach another day the whole fall, not one day. So you have 50 girls on a team, 30 families spoke out in support of me. 30 families spoke out in support. And it was generally, it was this girl who claimed that my tattoo offended her or hurt her. Well, this is a very strong-minded, confident girl. And I saw the picture and it was the tattoo picture. So I knew right away who it was. And I defended myself and I said, you know, I don't have to be anywhere around her. She doesn't have to come to practice. I will do whatever it takes for her to feel safe. But I have an entire team of runners that feel fine. And talk about an overreaction on the part of the administration in Bo. What I think is I offended the parent. I offended her surviving parent. And this parent worked very hard to support their child, which again, that's their child. And if you feel, if I thought somebody was trying to hurt Gracie, I would be all over it. Having said that, 30 families wrote to the athletic director, to the principal, to the administration, to the Department of Education. As a certified educator, any of these complaints have to go before the DOE to make sure you're not breaking the code of ethics. <laughs> you know, reach out and help a person who lost a parent as an eighth grader, and that's breaking the code of ethics. I think what I did was, I think I intimidated the parent. We had a couple of episodes at two cross-country meets where the girl on my team was sobbing, just sobbing, because she'd been yelled at or insulted or mistreated. The parent came to watch and didn't like what they saw and left. There was all this going on. I shared all of it. If I 
made public the emails that I wrote asking for help, it would be a bit mind boggling. My last day of coaching was that Tuesday after the Manchester Invitational. That was my last meet. Five freshmen won the freshman meet. That's a big, big, big cross country meet for five little girls from Bo, young ladies, high school freshmen to win that meet was huge. And I was so excited about it. I felt like I was finally turning that competitive corner and I was on the way to a state championship level team. I never coached again in Bo. So fine. I try to follow along. We're living in a, in a time where the Concord School District had the whole Howie Leung case where he had sexually assaulted two students over a course of several years. I get it. We want to make sure our kids are safe, but penalizing the people that aren't hurting kids only helps the people that are. And that was basically what I said when I got hauled into the Department of Ed to talk about what happened. And fortunately for me, the folks at the DOE could see that what we had here was a parent who had completely overreacted in a school district that wasn't willing to stand up for sort of what was right. My hunch is that the athletic director didn't want me to coach there anyway, had not always agreed on things, but I think this was a convenient way for them to take a new direction in their team. And that's what happened. The hard part about this was in the process of this, this family wrote a letter and the letter was nasty and mean, just full of lies, taking good things and twisting them around. Horrifying, horrifying letter. Sent it to all the school board members in Concord, sent it to the city council members, sent it to the police put it on social media. So of course the Concord Monitor finds out now, you know, reporters, <laughs> not a fan of the Concord Monitor. And so now what they're doing is writing, oh, Barbara Higgins, who also lost her job in the district. And it just recreated that I'm some sort of monster. What does this have to do with Molly's death? I'm the mother of a child that died. And this little girl was the daughter of a parent that died. My intention was to support her and help her be happy and healthy in high school and to have a circle of friends and to be okay. There's nothing in what I did that anyone could examine and think, oh, well, that's inappropriate. Maybe my language, but if you go to any high school practice and listen to coaches on fields or listen to kids talking on the sidelines, sometimes the language isn't the greatest, <laughs> but never name calling and never using inappropriate language in a, in a mean way. So just mind boggling. And I just thought, how can this be happening to me? I went back to bed. Sometimes for me, when, when bad things happen to me, I crawl into bed and I just lay still, perfectly still. And I remember that whole fall, you know, I wasn't really doing any other work. You know, I'd been recovered from a brain tumor. I was just doing nothing. And I just was a disastrous mess and I didn't get to go back. They didn't hire me back. And my coaching career ended from what I believe to be a manipulation of the truth around a very unhappy set of adults. And I was an easy target. And I was. I set myself up again and again. And this was a case where I certainly did leave the door wide open for manipulation. I would happily invite those people onto my podcast and get the other side of the story if there was something to share. I just felt that this was so mean given all that was going on. And here's a family that understood grief and loss. And here's a girl that had really relied upon my daughter who lost her sister as a support person. So that was hard for me to take. In the process of this, just as this was culminating, I was asked by the, the DOE and by a local charter school to step in as, as executive director, as managing director, to oversee a charter school that was having some difficulty financially. So here I am sitting in a, in a room in the Department of Ed being chastised for crossing boundaries with one of my runners, or that's what the parents had said. And they were very, very supportive of me in that and said, you know, it was really mishandled, a waste of their time. But at the same time, being asked to manage a charter school. So there was some vindication there. I felt like, okay, see, I'm not a bad person. Hello. You know, I'm being trusted with a school. And that would be number three as to walking into a ticking time bomb 
and just feeling like I was in a place that I was loved and supported. I worked 60, 70, 80 hours a week from December of 2019 till the end of the summer, 2020. Hours and hours and hours to save the school. The person that started the school, a good friend of mine, Steph, we've known each other for a long time. The deeper we got into the managing the school and the deeper we got into the issues going on, the bigger the problems. Suddenly it was way over my head. The school doesn't even exist anymore. Too many things, too many missing pieces, too many things gone wrong. And another friendship loss. And some of the things said in that process that I was just accused of taking credit or being dishonest. And, and I think of the hours, hours and hours of free labor I gave. I hired an attorney who I owe thousands of dollars to, to fight for the school, to keep it open and make it work. And somehow at the end of that whole thing, <laughs> I'm the victim. I mean, I'm the bad guy. <laughs> so why am I sharing all this? I guess I'm sharing it because to all my other grieving mothers out there, if, <laughs> if all the mistakes that you make in life follow you through your grief and people don't back off because you have a child in heaven, I guess we're not supposed to. I guess there's no guarantee that people are just going to be nice to you because you've had a bad thing happen to you or that you even deserve to have them be nice to you. Maybe I did mishandle and misconstrue everything with the runner on my team. I certainly didn't wake up and think, huh, I think I'll scare the crap out of one of my runners today. Never, ever, ever, ever. I spent hours cutting ribbons and all of the, you know, making collages and books and putting together, you know, writing tribunes and all those things because it's a passion of mine, a passion that I now no longer do once again. And, and that's hard for me. The friend that started the charter school, we had thought of years ago, we got together long before Molly died to start a school together. And now there's no school and no friendship. And then Robin. So Robin, Steph, my whole entire staff at Bo and everyone that I met there, absent from my life now, almost like they never existed. And it befuddles me sometimes because 99.9% .9 of the time, I still look at my life through the lens of Molly isn't here. You can't not think it. It's the first thing I think of when I wake up and it isn't like it was before, but I have realized in this journey that it matters not that I've gone through this terrible thing. I'm going to walk into situations where people really, really don't care <laughs> what's gone on with me or with anyone and what they have in it is their agenda in themselves. Does that make any of these people bad people? No, Steph is not a bad person. Robin is not a bad person. The family in Bo is not a bad family. They're all fine people who I believe are doing the best they can. But I seem to be on the receiving end of a baseball to the cheekbone again and again and again. And so in my learning process, in my healing process, in my grief process, I am starting to try to figure out how do I end up in these situations? And does this behavior, did this behavior contribute to Molly's death? When I talk about a thousand tiny steps and each of these episodes, you know, I start with Jack and I work my way back to Molly's death. And from Molly's death, I have to work my way back to where did that start and what was I doing or what decisions did I make or what did I bring into my life that could have contributed to all of the events that led up to Molly dying of a brain tumor. The bottom line is doctors didn't find it. And by the time they did, it was too late and she died. I can't own that. I'm not a medical doctor. There were tons of steps missed that should have and could have been taken that would have saved Molly's life. Having said that, my mindset in my frame of mind has always haunted me because I was so distracted by the people that didn't deserve my attention that I shouldn't have been paying attention to. I go back to my story I told about my friend Jack calling me selfish because I didn't have time for dinner with him. And I regret that now. I look back at those times and he was a person in my life that was helping me as much as I was helping others. And, and he's the one that I didn't go to dinner with. I don't even remember what I, why I couldn't go, but it was one of those things. So here I sit now, five and a half years into grieving Molly's death, 
I've brought a new child into the world. I have a marriage that failed, but Kenny and I still live together and, and work as a family unit with Gracie and Jack. I have a relationship with Roy that maybe never should have happened in the first place, but it did. And it, and it started and stopped and started and stopped. And we've been wonderful together and supportive of one another and then hateful. And right now we don't speak and it's mind boggling sometimes. And, you know, those things, some of those things I feel are a little too present, a little too personal to share in a podcast. But my point is all of the things that we carried with us before the trauma stay with us. Why am I sharing all this? Well, part of it is I need to share it. I need people to know that I took a picture of a tattoo and a family didn't like it. And I lost my job because of it. I have to own my choices in that. Was it the right thing to happen? Absolutely not. One family and their version surpassed 30 other families. The folks at the DOE were amazed at the support that I had. Letter after letter after letter saying, this is crazy, please. We want Barb to stay. And I didn't stay. I was not asked to stay. My friendship with a lot of the people associated with that coaching job, they're over. I will say, I have a huge cadre of parents, of girls that I coached over the years, from Bo and from Concord, who have stood strong and stayed with me. But all of this, the Robin scenario, the lawyer scenario, the Bo scenario, the charter school scenario, where I, I jump in with two feet to help at this charter school and quickly over my head, spending 60 hours a week there, away from my family, away from Kenny, away from Gracie. The pandemic starts. I'm never home. You know, and I remember them just like, what happened to you? Now suddenly it's all about the, it's all about this. And what about us? And, and it's true. I, I set goals for myself that year. I had just started my spiritual mentoring and I set all these goals and all the goals went out the window. None of them occurred because I buried myself in someone else's problem. And that's where my boundary issues come the most. The other piece is when it all starts to fall apart, when things explode, I get frantic and I just want to fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it. I don't want Kenny to hate me and I don't want Gracie to hate me and I want Jack to be happy. I want things to be okay. And I don't want Roy to hate me and I don't want Robin to hate me or Steph to hate me or this family and Bo to hate me. I, I run around in this panic that I'm hated. And when I really read, oh boy, do I read now so many books on trauma, on narcissistic personality disorder on PTSD, on grief, on loss. And our society right now and our culture functions on grief and trauma with the pandemic and all of that. So I share all of this to say, get up every day after nursing a baby most of the night, which is the best part of my night. You know, and, and I manage it. I try to put it together. I tell you, I take a thousand tiny steps every single day, inch along. And by sharing all these uglinesses, the fact that, you know, I was willing to trust people <laughs> with a legal situation that was way over my head and that I was willing to reach out to a hurting child and perhaps over support her. And the fact that I spent hours away from my family to help a charter school that I had no connection to other than I wanted it to work and I cared for the owner. You know, I, ha I have to own these things. I have to own my piece in it, but it also doesn't excuse the choices that people make. Robin has the right to end a friendship with me. It doesn't mean that, that she has a right to just be hateful and hurtful and mean outside of that. People are that way. I won't participate. I won't. I won't say mean things about any of these people. I firmly believe at the basis of, of life, all of us are good. I think it's Helen Keller who always said that people are basically good. We have to find the goodness in people if we're going to survive at all. And I definitely feel that way. So what have I learned in sharing this podcast? That I'm not very articulate when it comes to talking about bad things that have happened to me. And I think that, again, stems back to what it's like to feel like as an abused child. How do you articulate? something in a way that doesn't sound pathetic, because that's how I feel sometimes, like pathetic Barb screwing up again. 
It's really, truly how I feel at times in looking at this. But mostly I share it because I know, I absolutely know that each of you listening has a situation or an event just like this. When I first started reading up on like, okay, why do I attract this drama in my life? I thought that maybe I'm the narcissist. I've, I've read up a lot. One of the key features of narcissistic personality disorder as a real disease is that a narcissist will never even contemplate that they are a narcissist. It doesn't even enter their mind. I've spent hundreds of dollars in therapy over the past few months trying to figure out where is it? I am very ego-driven. <laughs> we have ascertained that I do often function with a giant ego. Being an, an elite athlete, I think a lot of ego-driven behaviors come from both feeling inadequate and, you know, wanting to shine and be the best and looking at the world through, through the lens of self. And it's easy to do when you, lose, when you lose a child. The other piece in my grief journey in losing Molly is the friend of mine that really took me down a very dangerous path around alcohol and drug use. And that's a tricky conversation to share because if we live in a small town and you know, sharing too much, it can be tricky and dangerous for a lot of people. And where's the balance with sharing what's happened to me and hurting other people in, my, in that process? But I also have to wonder what goes through a mind of a person who knowingly offers a level of support and a measure of comfort that is damaging and has damaged them before. And knowing it will likely damage me. That's a journey that I'm going to end with here because I oftentimes now in my car, in my alone moments, when I'm having conversations with myself, I, I shake my head and say, oh, Barbara Jean, how could, you have, how could you have spent two years living that life? But I did. I lived a very dark time for two years, the first two years of Molly's death and my grief journey. So my overriding message here, I guess I don't have an overriding message. I just shared with you three scenarios that have occurred to me in grief, nasty coverage in a newspaper. <laughs> Here's the kicker for me is when the, when the truth comes out, I call the very same newspaper and say, hey, Here's what happened, and they don't want to publish that. That isn't really a story. Well, it's a story when you can make me look bad. It's not a story when, when the evidence shows that nothing is wrong. And this happened in my, in my school district dilemma as well, you know, 11 years ago. All the evidence came back that I was totally let go inappropriately, and nobody wants to cover that. Nobody will be interested. <laughs> I have a neighbor who's a newspaper editor, and he goes, well, that's not going to sell papers. Well, okay, but it's the truth. <laughs> These are issues that plague me. And didn't stop plaguing me in my grief journey. I have learned so many things in the last five and a half years. And throughout all of those times, through my dark, drunk times, through my spiritual mentoring times, through my coaching times, through my working at a charter school times, through all of these things and all of my growth as a grieving mother, I was no different than I was before Molly's death in terms of how I behaved and handled a lot of situations. That's an incredibly valuable piece of information for me because the world isn't going to stop. I often use the train analogy. You know, so much of my life I picture as a train ride. I'm on a journey. And that sometimes absolves me of choice making and responsibility because I'm just a passenger. I don't decide where the train goes. Except when the train you're on is your life journey, you're also the conductor of the train. You're also the engineer. I have every bit of control over where the train goes that's taking me on my life's journey. Yes, horrible things can happen to good people. Horrible things can happen to people that have had horrible things happen to them. In my five and a half years since Molly has died, I have had wonderful things happen to me and I have had horrible things happen to me. And I hope in sharing the horrible things that you can step back and say, okay, what, what are my horrible things? <laughs> and what did I do to bring them into my life? Or what tiny steps did I take that facilitated these things on my end? Because I am certainly not a victim in any of these scenarios. I wholeheartedly participated in all of these relationships. And so I have to carry that responsibility myself. 
The sun is setting far too early. This will be coming out right around New Year's. So happy New Year, everybody. There's a lot of memes, memes on social media right now that say, let's not make any proclamations about 2022. <laughs> because, you know, we're coming up on the two-year mark in March of the pandemic. It all started sort of percolating two years ago now. Every day when we wake up and I bring Jack in or downstairs or wherever to say, Kenny, one of the first things Kenny said, and he did this with Molly and Gracie, it's another day. And that was it. And I remember when Gracie could finally talk, one of the, one of the first things she said when Kenny went to wake her up, it's in our day, you know, in her little baby Gracie voice. And so I think that's all I'll say about, about 2022. It's another year. <laughs> I'll have a couple of more episodes of this season, maybe just one, actually, one or two. And then we'll go into season three. As I continue my thousand tiny steps backwards in terms of what is it that ultimately caused Molly's death and Jack's arrival, I'm going to talk about the years between my job loss and Molly's death. Those are some pretty tumultuous times and some wonderful times and pull into my struggle as a grieving mother, reflecting back on times in my life that how I feel they contributed to Molly's death. Do something good for yourself. If you have goals for the new year, go ahead and you know write them down and follow through on them. If you don't want to set goals until February, let January kick in. <laughs> I can certainly relate to that as well. Because I was a seasoned athlete, meaning I, my season started and finished at different times, my new goals never, never coincided with January 1st. They always coincided with you know, the track season starting or the cross-country season starting or summer training beginning. So my goals were different. But it's always good to have goals. It's always good to matter. It's always good to put yourself out there, <laughs> even though, as I've illustrated, it can end up in disaster. So as always, I hope you're well. I hope that you're entering into the new year in a good place. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.